Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning out of the Gospel of John, starting in verse 322. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the groom. The friend of the groom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you to John chapter 3 as we pray. Uh, Father, we pray uh, in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, that we would be people of your word, creatures of your word, shaped and molded and fashioned by it, that we would keep the end in focus. For you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In his name we pray, amen. Well, hey, I have a question for you, if you don't mind. It's sort of a cheery question. How often do you think of the end of your life? I know it's 9 o'clock. I see, don't you, have you ever seen my beautiful calendar or the, the clock in the back? It's wonderful. I know it's a cheery question at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, but how often do you think about the end of your life. I mean, the end of your life can be a daunting topic to think about. It can keep you up in the middle of the night. It can keep you glued to your bed on a cold morning. Uh, But the end of your life, whether you realize it or not, uh, determines virtually everything you do and think throughout every day of your life. Uh, The end is sort of like uh, the magnetic pull through which the compass of our life always points. And the compass always points true north towards the end of our life. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, if, you're, if you like theology, was one of America's greatest theologians. He was a former president of Yale. And uh, he thought about the end of his life constantly. Uh, he helped keep his end in mind. And so he famously wrote down 70 resolutions. Uh, you can go home and Google them. There are posters you can buy of the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, These were his sort of codes to live by. Uh, If you've ever read them, these will sound familiar, but uh, resolution number nine, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote this, resolved to think much on all occasions about my own dying. Number 17, resolved that I will live in such a way as I will wish I had done when I come to die. For Edwards, keeping the end in mind empowered and helped him live his day-to-day life. That's why he thought often of his dying. So what is the end of your life? Can you even know it? Uh, Friends, what if I suggested to you that you could profoundly know the end of your life? 
Well, as you can probably tell, I'm doing a little bit of a wordplay with the word end. Now, very much the same way John, our author, does wordplays with words like life and seeking. So, you know, end, of course, means most obviously the finish, right? The final part of an exploration. You know, it's the end. It's the ending, right? It's all over. It's that last slide on those old color cartoons that would, with, in script would say, the end, right? That's all, folks. But, you know, if you are a wordsmith and you like words, you'll also remember that the word end has another meaning. It means the goal, the purpose. And although we don't think a lot about the ending of our life, we also rarely think about the true end, the goal, the purpose, the vision that drives all of our decisions. You know, that end is what T.S. Eliot talks about in Four Quarters. He writes these famous words, uh, you know, that, that great poet, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all, of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot was a, a famous Church of England member and a follower of Christ, and he says the end of all of our exploring, the goal, the purpose of all of our exploration in life is to come back to where we started and know it for the first time. It's almost as if Eliot is saying we are the offspring of God and the purpose, the goal of our life is to be reconciled to him and know him again for the first time. And make no mistake, friends, the passage that we're looking at this morning is all about the end of John the Baptist. And I mean that in both ways. It's about the end of John the Baptist's ministry, which was started when Jesus started baptizing people, and it culminated when John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod Antipas, and thus endeth the ministry of John the Baptist. And he would be eclipsed by Jesus of Nazareth. So this passage is the last section about John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. This is the end of John the Baptist. And yet, profoundly, it's also about the end of John the Baptist. The goal, the purpose, the vision, the driving power behind John the Baptist's life and ministry. This is where John the Baptist says the end of his life is that he may increase and I may decrease. So friends, surprisingly, uh, perhaps profoundly, the end of John the Baptist also sheds light on the end of all of our lives. The purpose, the mission, the drive, the power. Uh, the Greek word, the telos, the end in sight. So let's see how this plays out for John the Baptist. Let's look at our first section, verses 22 through 24. This is sort of the beginning of the end. And these verses are not meant to just be sort of uh, to blown past just because they seem to include places and times. Uh, this is setting the stage for all of the tension in the story. Look at verse 22. After this, that is after Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there and was baptizing. Now, verse 4-2 on the next page, uh, John, the author, will make the point that, well, Jesus didn't actually physically baptize people, but he oversaw the disciples baptizing people. Now, the reason John, the author, is mentioning this is because as John the Baptist continues his baptizing ministry of repentance... 
Now Jesus simultaneously starts to baptize people on his own authority. Look at verse 23. Start to feel the tension of the story. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. See, verses 22 and 23 are telling us as John the Baptist has his baptizing ministry, now Jesus begins his own ministry. And you may, you know, glaze right past those words, Anon near Salem, uh, but these are profoundly important names because those are places in Samaria. And the Samaritans did not hold to the truth of all of God's words. They were not Jews. They maybe ethnically would have been half Jewish, half Gentile. And what's happening right now is John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord, not just with the nation of Israel, but now he set up camp in the middle of Samaria and is talking about repentance and knowing the God of the Bible to heathen Gentiles, the Samaritans. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. If you turn the page, Jesus, in John chapter 4, as we'll talk about next week, also goes to Samaria, and he shares the gospel with a Samaritan woman of all people. Quite the scandal for Jesus' day. So here we see not just prepping for Jesus' ministry uh, to all the nations and all peoples, we see John also baptizing simultaneously with Jesus, which begs the question, why is this happening? And John the author, not to be confused with John the Baptist, tells us why this is all happening. Why is there these simultaneous baptisms happening? And in verse 24, we get that ominous sentence. Uh, John the author doesn't explain what happens to John the Baptist. Uh, we know from reading the other gospel accounts like Matthew 14 uh, that John the Baptist preaches and he has uh, the gall to call out Herod for his sexual sin. And so Herod's mistress demands that he be put in prison, and eventually John the Baptist has his head taken off during a festival party for Herod. But John, the author, doesn't mention any of that. He just has that ominous statement in verse 4, letting us know that this is about the end of John the Baptist, for John had not yet been put in prison. And remember, John is writing many, many decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so he doesn't need to recount the sad story of what happens to John the Baptist. His point is that the end of his life was really the end of everything that John the Baptist did. It was the goal of everything that he did, which was that he would prepare the way, not for himself or for his own glory, he would prepare the way for somebody greater. So who is John the Baptist anyway? Uh, well, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the Old Testament ends uh, with the book of Malachi. It's the last of the Old Testament books written, and these are some of the last words that God spoke before the New Testament came around. And God says these words. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He is coming, says the Lord. So God in Malachi says, I'm coming to my people, and you'll know it because my messenger 
will come before me, and he will prepare the way. And then in one of the last verses of the entire book, in Malachi 4, God says this. These are literally some of the last words written in the Old Testament, Malachi 4. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So who is this mysterious Elijah that's come to prepare the way, not just for the great King Messiah, but for Yahweh himself, the Lord himself? Well, that great prophet is John the Baptist who is preparing the way, not for his own glory, not for his own mission, but for the glory of the king himself, the king to end all kings, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the end of his ministry and life, the goal of John the Baptist's life and ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Because it was always about Jesus for John. But you can start to feel the tension, right? And if John doesn't feel it, certainly his disciples start to feel that this is the end of John the Baptist. And that's exactly the next section. Look at verse 25. You can turn the page if you have a blue Bible. Let's look at the end of John the Baptist. Now, a discussion arose, verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So apparently, as Jesus is baptizing... And John is baptizing. Somebody comes up to John's disciples and they say, well, whose is better? Do I need to get baptized by Jesus or do I need to get baptized by you? We don't know exactly what the discussion is, right? Maybe it was more of a debate, uh, but who knows? And so what do these disciples do? They start to feel on the back of their neck that maybe John's ministry is coming to an end, that he's going to be eclipsed, that his glory is going to be diminished, that Jesus is now a threat to all of the good that John has been doing, that Jesus is a threat not just to John's glory, but to their own glory that they get from being associated with John the Baptist. So what do they do? They go to John, their leader, and look at verse 26. And so these disciples come up to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, what I love about that sentence is that is hyperbole. That is not true because look at verse 23. People were coming and being baptized in Anon of Salem. In fact, part of the reason why John went to Samaria in the first place because there were so many people coming to John the Baptist that he had to go where there was more water. And yet you start to hear the irrationality, uh, the ugly voice of envy coming out. All these people, they're just all going to Jesus. What are you going to do about it, John? They know the end is coming, but John tells them he's had the end in sight all along. Look at verse 27. John the Baptist answered, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John says, everything about my ministry is something that God has given me. And if God wants to give, I will accept it. And if God wants to take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I haven't gotten anything except what God has given me. 
And then look at verse 28. He goes on and he says, you listened to me, right, guys? You heard me. You yourselves bear me witness. Tell me I'm lying. I told you that I am not the Christ, but I was sent before him. And then John uses this beautiful illustration. He says, the one who has the bride is the groom. The friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. What John the Baptist is saying is he's saying God's people, which all throughout the Old Testament was depicted as this bride, this beautiful bride that sometimes cheated on her husband. That's God's people. You read Jeremiah 33, God, uh, Hosea. God depicts his people as a bride that he is going to love and marry. And what John the Baptist is saying is he's saying the groom has come. The true lover of God's people has come to take his bride to himself. And I'm just the best man. (laughs) And in the ancient Near Eastern world, D.A. Carson points out in this beautiful uh, commentary note that in this time, it was always forever illegal for the best man of any wedding to ever marry the bride. (laughs) That was one of the contingencies. You can be my best man. You can throw the bachelor party, but as long as you never marry my wife when I'm dead, we're cool, right? But you can't marry my wife. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying. It wouldn't just be wrong. It would be deeply wrong. It would be a betrayal of Jesus for me to ever pretend that I were the groom. I'm not the groom. I got to be the best man. And I rejoice that the groom has come, the one to take his people to himself as his very own. You see, that's who John the Baptist sees himself to be the best man of the wedding. Now, of course, dripping all throughout this passage is the sin of envy, the potential for envy. And the fact that John the Baptist turns away from envy, envying Jesus, is why John is considered one of the most righteous people that has ever lived. I mean, who here hasn't experienced some deep level of envy in our lives before? I mean, If anything, envy is probably our norm. We think of it as a moral good. It helps us get one leg up on other people, right? Envy is that disdain for your coworker who's more productive than you. It's your disdain for that person in your family that people just seem to like more than you. It's your disdain. Oh, that preached to somebody. (laughs) Envy is that sense that you've got the short end of the stick. You know, what it makes envy so dangerous is you can envy not just the bad things about people. You know, it's like, oh, pff, that dude has a Tesla. What a jerk, right? Well, that's an obvious thing to envy. The dangerous thing about all the vices, especially envy, is you and I, we can envy the good in other people. And it can make their goodness make us hate them all the more. Uh, St. Basil the Great um, Don't you love that title? St. Basil the Great, what a guy. Living in the 300s, preached a sermon on envy. And his insight into the human psyche and soul is just so profound. Listen to what he says in the sermon from the 300s called Homily on Envy. He says, What makes envy so unbearable is that the jealous person can never divulge their envy. On the contrary, She hangs her head in shame, downcast, troubled, moaning, unnerved by this evil. But when asked about the cause of all of their suffering and misery, she's too embarrassed to disclose 
her affliction. She cannot say, I'm resentful and bitter. The goods of my friend aggravate me. I am depressed by the joy of my brother. I cannot bear the sight of others' goods. In this way, this illness of envy slowly consumes the insides and eat us up. You see, John the Baptist's disciples, if they haven't committed envy, they're certainly on the brink, aren't they? They're basking, uh, as one person put it, in the reflective glory of another. They're around John the Baptist, droves of people are coming to him. He's so profoundly good at preaching and at baptizing and calling out Herod. He's saying all the things I've ever wanted to say about Herod. And now he's being eclipsed by somebody that he baptized. John, you can't let that happen. For these disciples, it's even possible to be envious of Jesus. So what's the end of envy? What's the ending, the death of envy? Envy is an indicator that something in our hearts is deeply wrong. How do we put it to death? How do you stop envying your coworker or your family member? Your spouse? How do you put envy to death? Well, friends, I think you have a different end in mind. You think about your end, and then you make your end the end of your life. Listen to how John the Baptist keeps his end in mind. He must increase, and I, by default, must decrease. I must decrease because this life, my purpose, my goal, my vision, my meaning, it's all wrapped up in Him. It's all about Him. And if I do anything to cheat on Him or steal His glory or try to steal the affection of His bride, it's no longer the life and meaning and purpose to which I have been called. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see what envy does, you know, when you really sense envy in somebody? Envy is a barometer on the soul. What envy shows you is what your end may actually be. You know, how do you determine what you're actually living for, what's your purpose, what's your vision? Well, just do an audit of your soul and say, well, what is it that I get really been out of shape when people have that I don't have? What is it that drives me to get one up on somebody? Because whether you realize it or not, that's your true north. That's where you're going. That's your end in sight. You see, envy is just an indication of a deeper sin problem. Amazingly, you know, Augustine, another guy in the 300s. You're getting a bunch of old dead dudes. I hope you enjoy that today. <laughs> I'll, re, I'll quote from New York Times next week or whatever to offset it. Another old dead dude from the 300s, this time an African, said it this way. He said, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in him. St. Augustine, right? His point is, until we know what our end is, our compass is just going to flip all around, isn't it? Until we keep our end, the end of our life, we're never going to have life. 
Life and meaning and purpose, you know, it'll be like trying to cup water in your hands. It'll be momentary at best and leave you with nothing but cold fingers in the end. You will not get life and meaning and purpose unless Jesus is the goal. I mean, nothing in this life can be your goal. I mean, think about it. I mean, what do you want? A car, a vacation, an RV? You know, what if I gave you the beautiful RV and the Tesla that could drive it on a mountaintop with craft beer in the kegs or whatever you want? And an Eno hammock. I don't know what your picture of the good life is. You got the degrees hanging on the wall of the RV, right? Whatever you want. The retirement accounts, all full. And imagine you had nobody with you. It was just you. Something in you would realize in that moment that you're deeply lonely because those things can't really satisfy. Unless, of course, you've got somebody to share it with. You see, friends, what that pinprick in your heart tells you is that your goal, what you really yearn for, are not things. It's a relationship. It's somebody to share life with. It's for the end, never to end. And that's exactly what Jesus offers. Your heart is going to be restless until you find its rest in Jesus. Because he doesn't just offer you life in things. He is life. And he doesn't just offer you meaning in this life, but meaning for eternity. Uh, The communion, the sharing, the intimacy, the being known and knowing and accepting the beauty of the life around you cannot happen unless Christ is the focus. He is life itself. He created all things. How could it be anything apart from him? So how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus put an end to envy in your life? Um, What I want to suggest, friends, is it's not something you're going to think your way through. If you're a a thinking person like me, uh, you love to think about things. And you think, you think you can get your way to sanctification, I think. I don't know, I'll need to think about that later. Uh, But friends, what if the power to make the end of your life is not found within yourself? You know, Jesus knew his end in both meanings. We've already talked about in John chapter 2, when Jesus blurts out to his mother, Mother, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Even in Jesus' first miracle, Jesus was thinking about his end. His hour, all throughout the Gospel of John, refers to his hour of death. Even when he was throwing a feast at a wedding, he was thinking about the end, the goal, the purpose of his ministry. And his purpose was to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one of us to our own end. And he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus kept his end in mind. You know what John 13 tells us? John 13 tells us these words. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Friends, the power to reset the end of your life 
is not going to be you thinking it through. It's going to be capturing a vision of Jesus who saw his life's purpose to its end, which was to love you to the end, so much that he died for the sins that we commit. And three days later, he came back with breath in his lungs to prove to you that everything about your life culminates finally and ultimately at his throne. That's the end that drove Jesus. And believing in that is what allows you to know your end. Let me just finish with this. John, John Edwards, my buddy Jonathan Edwards, that old dead guy in the 1700s, he died young. He died young. He was 54. Uh, he had been a pastor. He had been a missionary to Native American people. He had changed his mind on slavery. He was president of Yale. And one of his resolutions was to always do what was best for his own health and what was best for his people. And so at the age of 54, Jonathan Edwards got an inoculation as an example to his people, saying, this is what's healthy for us, and I want you to be healthy, and I'll get inoculation so you know it's safe. And at 54, God took his life. He died young. John the Baptist died young. Jesus died young. Edwards in his resolutions put it this way, I frequently hear persons of old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives all over again. And so, resolved that I will live just as I can imagine I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Christian, you don't know when your end is coming, but you can know the end to which your life is oriented. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, may each one of us keep our end in sight. Lord Jesus, may you increase and may we decrease. May that be the end of all of our worship and singing and working and loving. Father, you are the beginning and the end. Amen.